0: Heavenly Father, speak to us this day and day by day the word that we need, that we may with faith, hope, and courage do that which Thou hast appointed unto us, and might in all things be more than conquerors through Him that loved us. In Jesus' name,
1: Amen. Amen.
0: today is from Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, and our subject, Constantinople 2, the fallacy of simplicity, the second council of Constantinople, Constantinople 2, the fallacy of simplicity. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again what be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In this passage and several others, Paul in his epistles rebukes the early church for lack of maturity, and he tells them that indeed they are of Christ, but they are babes in Christ and have not grown up to maturity, so that instead of being on a diet of meat, they must be continued on a diet of milk. One of the terms he uses for these babes in Christ, as he calls them, is in the Greek idiotes, which is our word, idiots. Now a child that doesn't grow beyond the barely crawling or barely walking stage remains an idiot. It has not the capacity for maturity. And Paul says, in effect, that many Christians remain spiritually idiots. They refuse to grow up. this condition is even more true today, I suspect, than it ever was in Paul's time or any time since. We have in our day so strong a democratic temperament that people refuse to understand anything that is above their level, and so they demand that everything be reduced to the lowest common denominator. We hear a great deal of talk among those who profess to be Bible-believing people and Bible-believing churches that what they stand for is the simple, old-time gospel, the old-time religion. Now, this simple gospel that they are so insistent upon, where is it to be found? When we turn to the Bible, the first five books, the books of Moses, give us the law of God, and it is a highly complex legal code that takes a great deal of patience and time to understand. It can be understood, like the whole scripture, but it requires that we stretch our intellectual muscles. Certainly the prophets, who make up the bulk of the Old Testament, are not easy reading. When we come to the Gospels, every page is full of hard and knotty sayings by our Lord. And the epistles of Paul, of course, are regarded as some of the profoundest, most difficult reading that anyone can turn to. And shall we call the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, an easy book to read? Obviously, the Bible does not give us this simple old-time gospel that these people are talking about. It gives us a highly complex body of writings, the infallible Word of God which expresses the mind of God in all its profundity. The law of God in all its holiness. The Word of God for us. And it requires maturity, study, and faith to be understood. Those who talk about the simple gospel usually do not have the Word of God as their gospel. They have one or two verses which they call the whole of the gospel, and usually it's John 3.16. He must be born again. A great verse. But very much perverted by them because John 3.16 calls for rebirth that we might become mature men and women in Jesus Christ, not that we might remain spiritual idiots. certainly the old-time religion that we meet with in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, in the Athanasian Creed, and in the councils of the early church, and in the definition of Chalcedon, which give us the biblical faith rigorously and conscientiously applied. These are not simple statements. And the great heroes of the faith, like Augustine, give us a further glimpse of the profundities of the Word of God. The demand for simplicity is a demand for perversion. And every demand for simplicity is also a demand for suicide. William Carroll Bark, the historian has written of the fall of Rome, and I quote, they confounded simplicity with strength, as if one could not exist without the other. Unquote. The more Rome grew, the more it fell prey to this fallacy. And they felt that the answer to all things was to simplify, to reduce it to the simplest possible element. What did this mean, practically? It meant totalitarianism and socialism. As life becomes more complex, as it grows, as it matures, the need for specialization increases, and hence also the need for decentralization. Every one of us here is a specialist in some form. There is scarcely a man in our day and age who is not a specialist. The time of the unskilled laborer is virtually gone. The more complex the world becomes, the greater the requirement for specialization and decentralization. And yet, this wicked democratic demand that would reduce all things to the lowest common denominator says when they face complexity let us simplify and this involves centralization consolidation socialism socialism is the fallacy of simplicity applied to economics and to politics The same fallacy of simplicity applied to Christianity is what we get in most of the churches today, both modernist and fundamentalist. It is a destruction of the faith. And of course, it is always and everywhere suicidal. What Rome did with its fallacy of simplicity was to destroy its culture and reduce it again to the household level in which a person had to do everything because civilization had broken down. And today one of the signs of the breakdown again is the do-it-yourself impulse. And the do-it-yourself movement is governed by the sheer economic necessity because it is no longer practical in terms of socialism to do things that are priced out of your reach. To have them done for you, you must do them yourself. The fallacy for sim- of simplicity, the lust for simplicity, is suicidal. It is destructive in every area. The first four councils, Declared the complexity of biblical faith concerning certain doctrines. The Fifth Council, which was the Second Council of Constantinople, meeting in 553, defended the work of the first four councils, especially Ephesus and Chalcedon, against this lust for simplicity. The emperor wanted peace religiously in the empire. And a great many of the churchmen said, why bother with all these complex and involved doctrines? Let's get down to a few simple, basic things that everyone can agree on. And so it was that, again, the kind of thing condemned at Ephesus and at Chalcedon Arose out of this demand for simplicity. To define Christ in terms of Scripture, as the councils have done, as very God of very God and very man of very man, truly God and truly man. Two natures without confusion, without commingling without the one being absorbed in the other, but in perfect union. A great many said, this is getting too complex for me. And some said, as far as I'm concerned, Jesus was God and that's enough. And others said, as far as I'm concerned, he was the perfect man and that's enough. And this lust for simplicity played right into the hands of the humanists. And so the humanists took advantage of this to press again their doctrines. Those who insisted that Jesus was to be taken as the perfect man who was so perfect that he was united with God morally were in a sense following Nestorianism only in the person now, Theodore of Mopsuestia, who, although dead at this time, was the thinker most followed by the people in this camp. Theodore of Mopsuestia did not see sin as man's basic problem, but finitude, the fact that man was not infinite. And it was not God who saved man, but man who saved himself with the cooperation of God, Christ as the perfect man who voluntarily entered in union with God and salvation was doing exactly as Jesus did and becoming one with God through your moral excellence. Those who said that Jesus was completely divine seemed to be at the other end of the pole, but basically they were in the same camp even as Trotsky and Stalin were in the same camp. How so? Because in both cases they destroyed the reality of the incarnation and they made for the confusion of the human and the divine. On the one hand, the monophysites, by the absorption of the humanity into the divinity so that Jesus Christ was of, of one nature, God, On the other hand, the followers of Theodora mocked Suestia by saying that man by his moral works reached a point of excellence whereby he became God. Now the humanists recognized the philosophical implications of these positions. They had earlier developed them, and now, of course, this lust for simplicity was playing into their hands as they had hoped all along. In any philosophy, the universals represent something basic to the system. The universals of a system are the basic truths, the ultimates, the realities that govern all things. Those things in terms of which everything is to be understood, in terms of which all things find their meaning. Now, in terms of orthodox Christianity, the universals of our philosophy are all in the triune God. For humanism, they are all in man. The existentialists today are the prime example of people who find all their universals in themselves. There is no law, there is no truth, there is no God outside of themselves. Now both of these sides with their lust for simplicity had broken that barrier and they had made the universal now one with man. Because since man, for those who follow Theodore of could reach this pinnacle of perfection and become one with God, then man could become his own universal, his own law, his own God. And if, as for the Monophysites, man could become in Christ absorbed into the deity, it meant all men now who became members of Christ were absorbed into the Godhead and were one with God. And therefore, they were walking universals. So that in the name of the faith, God was taken out of heaven and made every man. so that every man was his own walking truth, his own existential universal, his own existential truth. The council met this head-on with 14 anathemas that condemned both positions and every variation of these positions. They did not only this, but they also condemned everyone who expounded them. Theodore of Mach Suestia, Theodora, the church historian, Ivas, bishop of Edessa, everyone who held the opinion. This again has been a very unpopular measure with many people. And the council of Constantinople, the second council, has been regarded as a nasty affair because here they were laying down the law and condemning men who in most cases were already dead. This is not very nice. And you should, people said then as they do today, you should hate sin but love the sinner. Now this is a monstrous absurdity. Can you hate murder and love the murderer? Can you hate (coughs) adultery and love the adulterer? Can you hate theft and love the thief? This is ridiculous. These acts are the acts of a man. They cannot be abstracted from the man. A particular act of murder is the act of a man. And if the act is condemned, the man has to be condemned. And there cannot be any objectifying of the act as though it were something that existed apart from a person. You cannot take an act of murder and execute it. But you can execute the murderer. You cannot take heresy in the abstract and say, this I hate, but the heretic I accept. This calls for a schizophrenia that is unbelievable and unfortunately all too true. It is significant that Theodore of in describing Christ in his relationship to God, said that Christ was to God what the image of the emperor was to the emperor. This is a significant comparison and revelatory if much in Theodore's thinking. Because the image of the emperor which was worshipped, and so Theodore Basuestia said Christ too is to be worshipped, the image of the emperor that was worshipped by the emperors was not the emperor himself. In itself, it was a meaningless thing. It simply represented the emperor. The reality was the emperor. So when Theodore of Mopsuestia said, Jesus Christ is the image of God and therefore to be worshipped, but God himself is the God, the reality. He was saying that anything that comes to us as the image of God can be worshipped. And so, whatever other great prophet or teacher or religious leader comes forward and tells us that he speaks for God, he can be, Theodora of Mopsuestia indicated, the image of God for his followers, so that all religions become equally true. This was the clear cut humanism in the thinking of Theodore Motswesky. The second council, Chalcedon, anathematized all such thinking. The council needs to be honored and remembered today because we face the same problem. Today we have on all sides a mad lust for simplicity that is steadily destroying the faith destroying the body politic destroying the world and we find increasingly that the test no longer even among Christian people is faithfulness to God but faithfulness to man recently one young college student told me he said you know the test increasingly you get when you say you are a Christian as you face not only the secular groups on campus he is here at UCLA but also the religious groups the test question is this what are you doing for human welfare what are you doing for human welfare And if you're doing nothing, you're told you're not a Christian, he said. In other words, the real God of such Christianity is man, not the Trinity. And we find a similar test applied in other areas. Someone defended Billy Graham to me this past week on the grounds that he is saving souls. And it doesn't make any difference whether some of the things about him be true or not, such as one statement made at that meeting by someone else that he had, as some of you recall a few years ago, been ready to pay Mickey Cohen $10,000 to get up and make a testimonial and say he was converted. As long as he is saving souls ostensibly, he is doing a great work. And of course, the only answer can be the test of being a Christian evangelist is faithfulness to God not counting heads among men today there is the prevalence of humanism and the mad rush into simplicity the fallacy of simplicity but this is always in every age has been Suicide. The fallacy of simplicity and the demand for simplicity is a demand for perversion and it is also the cause of suicide. People who remain permanently babies are idiots and their chances of survival are poor. The future belongs to men and women under God we are not content with the ABCs of the faith, but delve into the truth deeply and intensely, to men and women who in every area of life spurn the fallacy of simplicity and insist on maturity. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee that thou hast of thy grace called us to be thy people, and we thank thee, our Father, that by thy grace we have been separated from the world of unbelief. We thank thee that thou art leading us step by step into the fullness of maturity in Jesus Christ. And that thereby thou art giving us the assurance of victory. For this is the victory that overcometh our, the world, even our faith. Confirm us, our Father, therefore, in godly maturity. Unto the end of the kingdoms of this world might become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we have our questions, just a little more on one point that I discussed. Here's a statement from Billy Graham. Verbal inspiration of scripture is only a theory and not a matter of great importance for the Christian faith. And then this, too, from his December 6th speech at the National Council of Churches General Assembly in Miami Beach, quote, so, I watched on TV from the hospital the Salmon March. I was in bed in Hawaii. And I saw that march and saw clergymen with clerical collars on. And when I looked at the clerical collars in America, I usually think of a clergyman that's not too emotionally un- uh, unstable. But here I saw them as they rounded that corner and saw the capital of Alabama. And I saw the excitement and anticipation building up. And they got to the steps and they began to sing, We will overcome. And I saw these clergymen clapping their hands, their emotions, tears, shouting. Why? Because they cared. Are there any questions? Yes.
2: You know, Rush, about 10 years ago, like so many of us did, when I became a right wing lunatic fringe, mm-hmm. um, we were fighting things on uh, economics for economic's sake and uh, political values for political values' sake. Yesterday I attended an all day uh, seminar, bring you a sort of a dummy book with Leon uh, uh, Tigeland, and d mm-hmm. Arrow Wings. And the right winner was uh, Milton Friedman. And uh, the interesting part was that Tyson kind of finally summed it up: that this is the religion that they are presenting. You know, yeah. it finally comes into the open that uh, it was no longer just a doctrine, but a religion. And after he presented the religion, uh, he began to self-canonize himself with "What he had done for the last forty years." They, just, they are definitely coming in the open now with it. It was faith, faith in humanity, faith in self-motivation, right. and everything
0: else. Something yes. Very significant. And you see, this is why they are going to be more and more intolerant of Christianity. They will seek to destroy it. Because it is a religion, and it is an intensely intolerant religion. And there is no truth but this, and everything else must be smashed. Very interesting, yes. Theodore of Mopsuestia,
1: oh. MOP,
0: FU Theodore of Mopsuestia, MOP. S U E S T A I A. Excuse me. Is that a city? Yes.
1: Where? Right.
0: In the Middle East. It was a very important center at the time, but uh, I don't know whether it's even in existence any longer. Yes.
2: Well, now
1: uh, in, in relation to this, is this being a part of a uh, physiological self-consciousness? These are coming out now, yes. Now, what I might ask is how um, does epistemological self consciousness affect economics?
0: How does epistemological self consciousness affect economics? Very definitely. And I think perhaps the most telling way it does is this. Recently, uh, we've seen several cases of conservative economists who a few years ago were describing exactly what was going to happen. Now, when everything they have described is beginning to come to pass, they're denying it. Instead of stepping forth and taking bows and saying, I was a prophet. I call the tune. They are withdrawing from their conclusions because they are coming to a self-consciousness of what man is and what man is bringing upon himself and they are withdrawing from. Now this is one reason why conservative economics is on the wane. It isn't that these men don't recognize that the old economic laws are valid. It's that they want to destroy them and replace them with man-made laws because they recognize that it's either God or man. And if you don't believe in God and you believe that these laws are going to be fulfilled, then how are they going to be fulfilled? By wiping you out. So you withdraw from the conclusions of your own economics. Today, the conservative economists are on the run. They are not standing up. We have half as many as we did ten years ago. Milton Friedman is not the conservative he was previously. And, of course, he has now a plan for a guaranteed annual income. So that uh, this is not the best kind of uh, conservatism to my notion. The new issue of National Review has his justification of this. I haven't read it yet, so I'll reserve judgment. But basically, you can see what's happening to these conservatives. And it is simply because their epistemological self-consciousness is driving them to the realization it's either God or man. And if it's man and they are humanists, they're going to have to choose ultimately in favor of man-made laws. And that's liberalism. What does it do to money? It means that you're going to try to have your own kind of money. You're going to make money even as you make everything else. You're going to be your God there. I hope sometime soon uh, to have a talk ready on another one on money because I was reading this weekend in uh, Lenin and in his second volume of his collected works, I ran into his thesis on money and banking. It's quite remarkable, and he says the best preparation for socialism is exactly what we're doing today. It makes it inevitable. So he said it is the kind of monetary policy, the paper money policy, central banking policies that is exactly the necessary ingredient that makes socialism inevitable. Uh, I'm going to work on that for a talk up north next month.
1: What is the people that do the money of it? In other words, if you are coming to a self-conscious yourself, doesn't affect the flow
0: of money. In sense. Like it's going to you know, the foundation? Yes. Well, uh, it does affect it first of all because money no longer has value you break down capitalization I won't go into this because uh, first part of this will be a part of my talk next time and second a great deal of this is going to be Dorothy's talk on the basis of some thinking she's done on her own at the next women's uh, group so we'll pass that up uh, what is- Yes, epistemological self-consciousness comes from the word epistemology, which means the theory of knowledge. Now, epistemological self-consciousness is that self-knowledge whereby you know what your roots and your foundations are, so that if you are a Christian, you are a root and branch Christian. You are a humanist, you are a root and branch humanist. Now, we're all familiar with people who don't have epistemological self-consciousness. They'll talk like uh, a humanist and a socialist one moment, and the next minute they'll talk like a Christian and a conservative because they d- don't have epistemological self-consciousness. They don't have a consistency coming from a self-knowledge of where they stand, what their roots are and developing everything out of those roots. Now, the unbeliever fights against epistemological self-consciousness because if he were to be consistent to his humanistic principle, he would have to admit that he can know nothing and that he has no hope. So the unbeliever fights against epistemological self consciousness, a self knowledge of what he is, a sinner under the judgment of God. But the Christian works forward to epistemological self consciousness. Yes. Right. Why do people think so
1: to thing? I mean people a you
0: know, why are they so reluctant to admit that they have a good foundation? Because they're
1: sinners. Yeah. And as sinners, yes, all right. Why are they so to admit it? So, because they're a bigger sinner.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, You get the masses down to the push button, you want to call it that. In other words, no one has to know much of anything. Generally, I mean, you can do one little thing and you can get by. It doesn't have to be like uh, one of our original farmers. You have to do everything. You have to do blacksmithing, and you have to do fowling.
0: Yes, but you see, they talk about complexity in order to say this is why we must simplify and we must control because it's too complex for you. And of course, they have far less capacity to control than we do. As far as the farmer is concerned, his the work is far more complex now than it was 50 years ago. Today he has to be an expert mechanic because he cannot afford to take his uh, tractor and uh, truck into the garage every time something goes wrong with it. He does all that work himself. He has to be an expert in a number of areas because it's so highly competitive that unless he has mastered a number of things, he is out of business. And in every area, this is true. There is less and less unskilled labor in any area, so there is a progressive need for specialization. There are very few people you can think of today that you know whose work is a simple one that almost anyone can do. It has to call for a specialized type of skill, an aptitude, and special knowledge even in your own field law there is no overall lawyer who handles any type of case it is uh, a very specialized type of law that every lawyer today practices and there will be specialties within specialties just in a single field yes
2: You've made one of the, you said the second council of Del you mean the second council of Contenu yes
0: Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, there was, were three councils of Constantinople, and this was the second. And only one of Chalcedon. Yes.
2: You know, Raj, in the self-consciousness, uh, Kaiserman presented his argument so well and, uh, and rationally and intelligently that it became very obvious that the way it seemed right on demand, he was presenting well. Yes. And while John Montgomery from the Welfare Department of Reading had no self-consciousness of what he really stood for, he was floundering here and there, and there's only one way to attack these people now, and that is the uh, God in Christ versus humanism. Yeah. So there is no other way to no under-root. Right? You could not have argued it with him from a rational standpoint, mm-hmm. except for the very basic of his faith.
0: Exactly, because once you accept their premises, everything is logical. Mm-hmm. If you accept the humanistic, the man-centered premise, then you have to accept their conclusions. The only way you can fight them, as you said, is in terms of the basic Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you surrender. Yes?
1: Uh, you spoke of the humanism being uh, a... Um, in, what was the term you used in parliament. Faith, uh, yes uh, well Christianity is uh, intolerant in uh, in many areas but uh, we are not out to destroy right. every religion we are taught to offer our religion yes but the humanist has to destroy
0: right he cannot convey.
1: yes uh, now is there any? In the um, New Testament verse, you think of, uh, that uh, gives us a basis for the purpose of man. In Ecclesiastes, we have uh, in the 12th chapter and the 13th verse, this verse, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Hear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole beauty of man. Yes. Is there anything comparable in the New Testament that you think just... No, there
0: is no single verse. However, the Westminster Catechism gives a lot of different verses when it gives the statement which sums up the verses. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it lists the verses in the fruit text section. Which bear the south, but there isn't one verse that sums it up uh, like uh, Ecclesiastes does. Yes? Wait, I don't know if it's in Jews or
2: if it's in because a lot of, fun out of the time I in the land of work that I followed, the more I simplify my work within certain limits, the better it turned out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, since, uh it, it was a simpler race when people put things on faith, now they got to prove everything. A step-down place, that a step the device, and that was good enough for them. That was mm-hmm. so a temporary system.
0: point well taken simplicity can be used in this double sense and uh, there is a difference between what is the straightest line between two points and an attempt to uh, which means efficiency so that there is a kind of simplicity which is efficiency eliminating uh, frills eliminating nonsense and so on and that of course we must be for but this fallacy of simplicity is trying to make complex things simple when they cannot be. In other words, your work is not simple work. It's a highly complex, skill kind of work. It's not a job that any one of us here in this room could uh, step into. And the idea that every kind of work and every kind of idea is something that should be on the level of everyone else, you see. Simplified to the lowest common denominator is this fallacy of simplicity that I'm dealing with. But there's a difference between that and specialization which is efficient. Now, what you're talking about is efficient specialization that cuts through with the, uh, these things. Now, who makes the mistakes that you're talking about where they get in unnecessary uh, steps and unnecessary procedures it's the person who doesn't know as much as you do. And because he doesn't know as much, he takes a great many extra steps. But because you are a master in your field, you eliminate these extra steps and you can reduce it to the essentials. But this in itself, you see, is a product of
2: specialization
0: and a high degree of knowledge. So this is a simplicity that comes from skill.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, I brought with me something today that delighted me no end, and I thought you might enjoy it, because so often we're treated to what the world is going to be like in uh, 20 years or 50 years, and it's interesting to see what somebody said along the same lines uh, some time ago. And this is from the Saturday Evening Post for December 29, 1900. Very interesting uh, set of issues at that time to go through to look at the ads and the prices of it in it. Uh, one of the ads that tickled me, he could write in and get a year's supply of tissue for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> Now this article is titled The Dwelling House of the Twentieth Century by Otis T. Mason. And it's about the architecture of the average home in 1950. And of course they're sure it's going to be a marvel marvelous world. And it says that a house is a suit of clothes for a number of persons, shielding them from observation and protecting them against extremes of temperature. that goes on to say that in terms of this, houses are going to be styled for people by 1950. The old tract houses, the subdivision houses that are going to be all alike, they're going to be a thing of the past. They will no longer exist. Also, wood or frame houses will be gone. All houses will be made of composition rock. (coughs) And, uh, they will be, in other words, uh, quite lovely. Dwellings are no longer, writing as though this were 1950, put up in solid blocks, all exactly alike outside and inside, a style most popular in the latter part of the 19th century. Uh, each house stands alone mainly because in the year 1950, people have come to realize that the lumping together of buildings renders them less attractive to the eye and deprives them in large degree of their power to express the individuality of their owners. So your house will express your individuality in 1950. Then, of course, such old-fashioned things as stairs will be gone. They will be completely replaced by automatic elevators because in the simplest private home with electricity so cheap, everything will be all electrical and the house will be heated by electricity. There will be no such uh, ridiculous things as visible lights overhead or switches on the wall. There will be a a register that you will set uh, for a particular degree of light, and it will maintain that light at all times during the day until you change the register so that if it gets a little cloudy outside or if it begins to darken the invisible lighting will come on in proportion to that and you will have this controlled and perfect lighting without the necessity of uh, turning on a switch and looking at ugly lighting fixtures too houses will be cooled by liquid air and Cellars and pantries will be a thing of the past because who will put up with such uh, nonsense when you can have uh, all your food from the uh, stores just to order, precisely ready to go into the oven and so on. And uh, then, uh, well, it will be totally electrical Uh, dishes, electricity has been substituted for the alcohol lamp in making tea and dishes on the table are kept hot by a current conveyed through the cloth from copper plates beneath. Not a battery is to be found in the 20th century dwelling here described. The electricity used in the establishment comes in a single current through a heavy wire from a distributing station and on the premises is split up as required for heating, for lighting, for cooking, for running the elevators, and so on. The dumbwaiter runs by electricity. Of course, you'll have a dumbwaiter and uh, so on, because this is, you're going to live in luxury. Mm-hmm. As well as the housewife's sewing machine and the same fluid both runs and regulates all the clocks in the house. It works the automatic piano and might be made to agitate the baby's cradle, only that people in 1950 have learned to know that infants are apt to be rendered stupid or even idiotic by rocking them. If the daughter of the house wants to crimp her hair, she fastens her curling iron with a little plug to a convenient wire and enjoys the certainty that the instrument will not scorch her curls. Also, it goes on to describe how all the furnishings will be radically different they won't uh, go in for the old-fashioned uh, things. And how queer the ancient four-post bedsteads, massive wardrobes, and chests of drawers look now a day. It must have been very uncomfortable to live with them. And so on. They're going to have these beautiful, streamlined, all-metal, and other sort of uh, thing, uh, well, modernistic furniture. Then, of course, one of the things that will be certain in 1950 is that there will be no polluted air. In the 20th century we regard smoke or waste air turned out above our premises as an infringement and a cause of action for trespass. It goes on along this vein. Of course, brick and wallpapers are out of date. They're germ catchers. No one will put up with any such thing. There will be all kinds of uh, modern plastics and other composition inventions that will totally replace them. So, it, the article concludes, A judicious person writing in 1900 must hesitate to attempt any serious prediction as to modifications in the building and equipment of dwellings which will be accomplished by the middle of the next century. There are, ventured here, only a few guesses as to what changes may come to pass. It will remain for a future generation to discover how far these surmises are accurate, though, of course, a good many people who have already arrived at adult age will survive long enough to live in and enjoy the luxuries and the improvements of the houses of A.D. 1950. So when you read about the marvels of the future that are planned for us, remember what they were talking about as far as the marvels of today are concerned. And with that, we stand dismissed.